Well, welcome. It's good to see everyone here. Thank you for trucking it through the cold night, and hopefully it'll be worth your time. I think it will be. We have a pretty ambitious night. We're going to be looking at this whole issue of liberty, uh, liberty of conscience. Some people describe it in our confession, Christian liberty. And, you know, this was a major, 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 may I say it again, major impetus for the Reformation. It was, it was probably the, at the very heart and soul of the Reformation. Um, uh, Christian charity in the sense of, of, of this idea of liberty and, and what role does institutions, and especially the institution of the church, but also the state, what role do the state and the church you know, have in binding conscience as Christians? And it was a huge issue. And it's sad to me that we don't take we don't really we don't take that very seriously these days. We talk a lot about freedom in America, but but we don't really. I wish we had a little more of a radar gun on our heads in terms of the ways it's either directly or indirectly. You know that which Christ died for to set us free. That we were more aware of how many ways that that can be. Uh, undermined both by the church and by the state and by fellow Christians. So we're going to talk about that and try to pump in there the whole issue of church and state, which is like huge. But um, but again, this is a, a, a beginning in theology, so we'll see what we can do. Y'all doing all right? Everybody good? Again, welcome. I didn't mean to jump right into it. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and we're going to do, do what we just did in the roundtable. We're going to do it while we're sort of getting into the... Uh, Handout. So if you have your handout, you might want to go ahead and get that as well. And um, But let's begin in prayer. And um, y'all have a good conversation. I heard some good conversation going on there. That was good. It's fun to hear you guys engaging that stuff. So uh, that's good. Fred, would you open us in prayer? Lord God, we thank you so much for this time to get together and learn about you and your word and how to uh, put it all together. Your glory, Jesus. So, this first question comes right out of the uh, the study guide as well. Um, it, it's it is an irony, isn't it that that uh, that most people today will pit freedom against religion and even Christianity. Um, why do you think this is, and how did y'all answer that first uh, roundtable? Westminster Confession of Faith prescribing belief and feel like that's okay. That's a lack of freedom. So what what is the what is the assumption behind that that concept of freedom? Okay, so why would a church saying to you what you should believe or what we believe is right belief, what what is it about that person that's seeing that as an infringement upon their freedom? They don't have to agree with the church, do they? They can say, screw you, church. So what, what, what do you think is going on with that? I mean, because I think, yeah, I do think you're right. There's a lot of, you know, I'm, I'm trying to explore. You might want to help that out, help Fred out there. What, what what's going on? What's in, what is underneath that concept that for the church to declare this is what is the Christian faith or what we should believe that someone would take offense at that as if it's an infringement upon their freedom? 
You might win them. It's an infringement upon their being their own authority. Mm. And is there are they are is their own authority? Are they free? That's what free well, is to have your own authority. All right. Anybody have a problem with that notion that that assumption? Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Um, I think the, just the assumption is that they're free to begin with. Like, yeah. So, and I don't think they are. Cammy, they, see, she's thinking. Okay, you get the A so far. Yeah. There, there's an amazing assumption there that that there's there that we are, and I'm going to use the term absolutely free, not relatively free. Christians are going to say that we are relatively free, but absolute free now those of you who've been in this web of belief what's what is the web of belief that we've been talking about what what doctrine are we beginning to get too close to here this issue of freedom when did it does anybody remember when we talked about that before original sin okay explain that uh we have a sinful nature as a result of the fall so we aren't free in the sense that we can be perfectly good. It's impossible. Okay. So we're in bondage to sin. Yeah. What what about the any other doctrine that we talked about? It's an actual calling. Okay, what how does that relate to freedom? <laughs> what are you thinking? Well, I was thinking the fact that um well, no, take that back. Wait, no, I, so that's like, kind of like saying um, whether or not we have the freedom to choose our, our faith. Okay, good. We're getting into the issue of, yeah, keep going. Oh, yeah, no, I was just, so um, the, the notion of um, do, we, do we get to choose our, our beliefs? So as a, as a Christian, um, as a Presbyterian, it would be um, this effectual calling. So God is calling us, and we're responding to it. Yep. But um, but this question of we, we don't have can we can we say no? And I, yeah. It seems like- yeah. There's an issue here. We if you remember when we talked about free will and the doctrine of God's sovereignty, we had to distinguish between absolute freedom of which only God has absolute freedom. Why? Because absolute freedom is contingent upon the nature and the being of the one we're talking about. There's only one being that is infinite, that is whose actions are not contingent upon any other uh, 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 cause. So think about it. The moment we can see that we are creature, and therefore our actions and decisions are caused... We are, we are dependent. We're not infinite and eternal and immutable and all those omnis. And, you know, it, in other words, it's, it's a predicate of the being of, of, of someone. The freedom is a predicate. It's, it's, it's your freedom from. If there is no from, by virtue of your infinite being, then it's always going to be a relative freedom at best. Let's look at our uh, look at our look at your your study guide. Uh, I'm just going to read it. We're at number one now. Now number two. Do you see that? The above, notwithstanding, and about the Christian life especially, the Scripture teaches for freedom, Christ has set us free. So the Scripture does teach 
And we are needing to talk about the issue of freedom. And all of creation is described as yearning to be set free from its bondage, in fact. And in relation to the work of Christ, wherein all of creation is said to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, Romans 8.21. So what do you think is meant by Christian freedom? Is anyone really absolutely free, or are we just relatively free? And if just relatively free, then what is true freedom? That last question, how would you answer it? With the assumption that we're relatively free, not absolutely free, what would be true freedom? Or relative freedom? When we get new bodies in heaven. Okay. Freedom from illnesses and things, I guess. But I'm more thinking here of, of the will and, and bondage. And I mean, it's certainly true that, we're, that, that Romans is talking about being set free from the decay of, of, of the fall, etc., well, but what what do you yeah true freedom that's yeah. what I said I think yeah. really truly we're only free yeah you're moving you're taking that more yeah I hear I see how you're taking it anybody else what is true freedom if it's relative freedom when you're fully cleansed of your sin okay and why sin because that's where the bondage is okay so you're free from there's always a from right. I'm getting more a little bit metaphysical on you here but. There, it, it's it's relative freedom, which means that it's a freedom from. Right. And then, how would you define f- what the from is about that would therefore define freedom as freedom? What is what is it we're being freed from? Tell me, from what? To be free. The old nature. Yeah. Okay. Keep talking, guys. Our, our, our self, our flesh. Our flesh, okay. I'll take that to be her point. Same. Okay, synonymous. That's fine. It, get Bounce out of yourselves a little bit. What else could be free from? From being condemned. Being condemned, free from God's condemnation. Good. Laws of men. What? Laws of men. Laws of men, freedom from men's tyranny, man-made tyranny. Okay, now you're, now you're going it. You see, freedom from... Our own sinful nature, freedom from God's condemnation and wrath, freedom from the world, the world, the devil. There we go. There we go. Now, what we're we're getting idolatry, idols, idols of our destruction, freedom from the point being, and this is really really important. And we go to number three. If you're looking at your hand, your handout. In other words, and contrary to the Enlightenment myth of absolute freedom, that's where we're going. There's a whole thing going on here. But right at the heart of the Enlightenment is this myth of freedom that is a very individualistic and absolute kind of freedom. The Scripture teaches that we are never absolutely free. Such that the Christian hope is to be set free from one thing in order to serve or be subservient to or under the power of something else. So, for instance, notice Romans chapter 6, 18. We are taught, and having been set free from your sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Notice then what the froms and the twos of Christian freedom are according to our Westminster Confession. So turn to section 1, and with that little uh, introduction, would someone read section 1 and keep watch carefully in the way that very intentionally our our confession is working the from to paradigm, okay? Someone read that, please. 
The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the, con- the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind, all which were common also to believers under the law. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected, and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. So you see in section one, this from two is further qualified. Um, as we're going to see in section three, I give you some scriptures that are that are being played in that that statement that you just read. So so think about this: How does sin enslave us? What does it mean to be enslaved to sin? What is sin, first of all? Rebellion against God. Okay. Someone else? Separation from all that would cause us to flourish. Good. So sin is separation from, you know, has a consequence of separation from God, which therefore separates us from everything and the source of human flourishing. So you're being separated from ultimately death and hell and... All the constant, in other words, sin is sin precisely because it is a destruction of the Imago Dei. I mean, God doesn't have sin for the heck of having sin. It's sin because it is both a, a, an affront to the character and nature of God, and God's character and nature is by nature life giving and flourishing. I mean, this is a connection you just got to always make when you're talking to people. That, that, that holiness is basically a definite, you could define holiness, at least in a Christian sense, as the, the, the image of God, the character of God, the, the being of God. And God is, if he's anything, is life and life eternal, right? So to, be, to sin, that is to, to be under the power of sin, is to be under the power of rebellion against God and therefore to be separated from the flourishing the very things that make us flourish. There's a direct, intimate relationship between holiness and flourishing because it's rooted in God, life giver and sustainer, and us. So, so there's this real key thing here in the scripture that gets on. So, so Christ then sets us free. How? What is freedom now? Based on what y'all just said. Jesus Christ sets us free. What does that mean? It's life, it's wholeness. Okay, how does that give us low wholeness? What has he done? What has he accomplished that sets us free <coughs> in that regard? Well, his death. His death, and what? why was that? In, what, what did that accomplish? Yeah, well, keep going. Because he, he died. To set us free, a good cliche. None pack it, yes. Uh, from, from the sin, he took, he carried that and... Sacrificed. So, so stated in the positive, God restored our relationship to God. 
It's atonement, right? He made atonement for our sins. He restored us back to that which is. So the real question in Scripture is not who who do you serve? I mean, you know, do you serve someone? But it's who or what? And are you serving that which is a master over us in a manner that is 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 for us and not against us or for our life getting and, and experiencing or against our life? Well, as life... His spirit does not oppress us. It's, mm-hmm. it, it releases us to, it's, yeah. to walk after him. He's the, he shows us and guides us yeah. to a much better way. So the irony is going back to the original sin, which we know is what? What's original sin? I don't mean by this historical, but what? What? How would you define original sin theologically? This is going back many. You know, this web is being utilized again. How would you define original sin again? What's the original sin of which all other sins are derived? Rebelling against rebelling God. Against yes, God. rebelling against God, rejecting God. So, at, so if you go back to original sin, <laughs> here's the irony, right? So. The very enlightenment notion of absolute freedom is exactly what the serpent offered Adam and Eve. As if you could flourish apart from God. As if you were free and you could free yourself. from Freeing yourself from God would be freedom. This is the great, great myth of the enlightenment. And it goes all the way back to the devil himself. That's the idea. That, that freedom, true freedom, is being set free in our, to be reunited to life and life who is the being of God himself. And so, uh, so this idea of absolute just gets debuffed, as you can tell. Um, section two then, or no, let's go and read uh, section three because this, this from two thing is uh, further clarified. So could someone read three? who, upon pretense of Christian liberty, do practice any sin or cherish any lust, do thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. So you see, he is getting back to this concept, isn't it? That, that no, they, they've, they've missed true freedom. Because by the very nature of, 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 the, of the cosmology of the world, you, you, to be free is to live. And to live is to be united to God. So death is not what I'd call freedom. Life is freedom. Eternal life is eternal freedom. To exist and to... And, to, and what's interesting here is with all that was just described, I mean, notice that robust... Definition of liberty from from from. Notice all those froms then in verse in the uh, first section there. From Satan, dominion of sin, the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave. I mean, these are all horrible things. And I would define freedom relative to those things. I don't want to define freedom relative to, oh, I want to be set free from flourishing. I want to be set free from life. I want to be set free from grace. I want to be set free from the fear of condemnation. I mean. Really? Or from condemnation? or from, I want to be set free from the freedom of condemnation. You know, though, that would be just nonsensical. And that's, that's what we're trying to see. So we've got to kind of debuff that. Um, notice now we're moving kind of briefly through this little original stuff here. Um, 
Okay. So returning to sinning is not really free, is it? It's returning to anti-life. And a master that is, that is cursing us, not blessing us. So section two, notice again some of the from two things, and notice how it's qualified in section four. So we're going to go back to two and read four. Someone read two for us. God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it if matters of faith or worship so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. There is so much in that little statement. But I want you to, here's, here's the second a uh, graded question, if you will. Who can, who can locate a quote from a previous portion of the Confession of Faith? Because I'm always interested in helping you see just how interconnected theology is, that one theological point or category is always related to the others, and ultimately they all relate to the doctrine of God. But what do you see there? Do you see a quote? Is there any quote here look familiar that we spent some time on previously? Do you see that little language contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith and practice? Where did you see that? You might know? The doctrine about scripture. There it is. That's it. That's it. It it comes right out of chapter one. You know, the doctrine of scripture, section uh, uh, section six of, of chapter one. Is, is trying to make it very, very clear that the Word of God is our only rule of faith and practice. Now, what is true freedom? It's not being set free from the Word of God. Notice. It's being set free from the, the, the commandments of men, and it's particularly here going to be related to not only the commandments of men that are contrary to the Word, but no human being or institution has the right to demand of you, your conscience, a belief that is just beside the word. It might be a perfectly good belief, but if it ain't scripture, by good and necessary inference, remember the, the, the interpretive uh, level you have to go to bind conscience. So now, how does that affect, the, how does that uh, regulate the church? We'll get into church authority later, but how does that regulate the church, do you think? For instance, what should the church require of you in order to be a member? Whatever it says in Scripture. All right. Now, should we require, this is going to be a fun little conversation maybe, should we require you, we believe that everything in the Westminster Confession of Faith is a proper belief by good and necessary inference of the Scriptures. I mean, it wouldn't be here if we didn't believe that. So everything, this is a creed, a dogma, a doctrine of faith. So, I think... If we're going to be consistent, don't you? That before you can be a Christian, you should be able to subscribe to the full Westminster Confession of Faith. Why not? 
Isn't that what Scripture teaches? Don't we believe that's what Scripture teaches? You didn't tell me that <clears throat> before I took those vows. Okay. Did anybody do that when they came to the church? We need to support it. Should we make an overture to the session that we get straightened out on this? <laughs> but you can't, until God opens your eyes, you can't understand the scripture in order to follow. So you're telling me you don't have to believe anything to be in the church? Because you're going to tell me well, my eyes aren't open yet, man. <laughs> what do you think? Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, no, I'm saying when, it's when, well, I yeah. to join the church, I miss, I didn't do that right. <laughs> no, maybe you did. <laughs> but I think that we don't understand until we have that relationship. That's true. So you can't join the church until you have the eyes that's open to be able to see the whole of, of script, the, the scriptures that we all have believed is, is being taught. So why wouldn't you need to learn the whole confession of faith and tell, you, tell us and subscribe to it? In other words, this gets to what's called the doctrine of subscription. What do you need to subscribe to? as a matter of faith and practice in order for you to be a member, let's say, of a church. You want to help her out? Who had a thing well, back there? That, oh, I was thinking that if, like, we believe in God's providence and timing, that he brings us to hear and see and understand things at different various time points along our lives. Mm-hmm. And, like, so these doctrines and these things that are with this creed that's within the Westminster, mm-hmm. So many of us are at various time points in our lives mm-hmm. that we understand, and God has allowed us to see the things. And we see okay, like I that's see right. That, um, where other people, like, it takes them longer to be able to fully right. see that. Right. Clearly. All right. Good. So, so let me help you out here. Look at number two again. Y'all look at the thing. You're kind of getting at it there. Let's keep reading if you want to answer my question and 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 refute me here. If you keep reading, it goes on to say. Um, or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy the liberty of conscience and reason also. (coughs) Now, why did that just answer my question as to why we should not overture the session today and say we need to change our bylaws, everyone should subscribe to the confession of faith because we do believe the confession of faith our tradition believes that the scripture teaches everything that's in it, even though it, it qualifies it that we are infall- we are fallible and therefore maybe in heaven somebody will show us wrong. <laughs> but right now, we, we, you know, as best as we can tell by good and necessary inference, this is what the scriptures principally teach, chapters 1 through 33, and all that's in it. That's what we, we say we're, we're, we're saying. Now, my question to you is, what are we missing here? Because this the confession of faith is supposed to be in a... Uh, a valid statement of what the scriptures principally teach. What you said is okay. Kind of like what this says here that you shouldn't make someone, you shouldn't, you shouldn't require someone to believe something they really don't believe. And they don't see from scripture to ask someone, just believe it because we told you to believe it is a bad practice. According to our creed, by the way, this is a great example of where people say no creed with the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you're going to have a creed, and yet you're not going to have it stated, and it's not going to be deliberated, and you're under a lot more tyranny than here. And here you've got a creed whose very purpose is to set you free from creeds as a conscienceable thing. It's protecting the authority of Scripture. That's what this creed is doing. Now, my question is, why then did we admit many of you into this church 
And you didn't have to believe. Heck, I don't remember us asking you questions about 99% of what's in this creed. Can anybody give me the key that unlocks the mystery? Did you want to say something? A profession of faith in our Lord Jesus. Okay, why that? Why just that? It's the basis of everything. <laughs> okay, but now, now notice what's happening here. We have to go to the scripture and ask scripture, what are the terms of membership in the church? How wide should the, the church be in terms of, of confession? Um, where do we draw a line and say, no, you can't, you, you're, you're not a candidate for, for the membership? We're going to draw a line somewhere. And that's where you also have to go to Scripture. See, it's not just what we believe, but now make sure we use our beliefs properly. Now, that's a huge statement. That we, that we not only believe the right things, but we believe the right things rightly applied. Oh, boy, I want you to sip, seep, seep in that. You could preach a great exegetical sermon, couldn't you? And then, whoop, take this beautiful exegetical sermon and off to the races goes the pastor on his private pet peeve. And you're going... Was that application a, a, a real and necessary inference from that exegesis? In other words, it's not just teaching good doctrines. It's teaching good doctrines applied good in a way that fits. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not the right doctrines. It's the right doctrines from the right passages. I, see, I hear a lot of great sermons. I've probably preached a few of these where maybe I got it wrong, where I preach good doctrine but was it really the point of that text? I was reading a book. I was sharing this in our Sunday school class. Um, and it is a good book. It's got some good insights about, you know, uh, I can't remember the name. What is the book? The Fish Parrow book about. Uh, you never stop being a parent. Do what? Yeah. You never stop being a parent. Yeah, never stop being. Sort of this, just a book written for parents when their kids have left their home. In other words, there's hardly any books about that uh, because you're kind of still a parent. So, what is your relationship with those kids? A lot of good wisdom there. Oh, my gosh, though, it gave me a heartache. I, I mean, I shouldn't put it on a thing, but, you know, it just really, you know, it, it reminded me of what it was like to be in this kind of Christendom world where we so casually throw Scripture around. I mean, come to the Scripture like you really have never seen it before, like some of us have, and you, it's just precious. I mean, it's like gold. I mean, you don't want to, you know, well, I'm not saying I do that either. I'm, I'm, I'm guilty as charged, I'm sure, and I've sinned, and I can be careful. Y'all pray for us. But the point being is it's, this is, this is an amazing statement here because it's, it's really regulating the church. And when we get to Romans 14 in a minute, you're going to see how important this conversation was because this idea that, that, that we're going to next. So let's go to it. You, uh, you uh, well, actually, before we do, let's go to four now. So let's read four because it's going to kind of explain what, what, Two, it just said. Who, who can read four? And because the powers which God has ordained and the liberty which Christ has purchased are not intended by God to destroy, but mutually to uphold and preserve one another, they who upon pretense of Christian liberty shall oppose any lawful power or the lawful exercise of it, whether it be civil or ecclesiastical, resist the ordinance of God 
and for their publishing of such opinions or maintaining of such practices as are contrary to the light of nature or to the known principles of Christianity, whether concerning faith, worship, or conversion, or to the power of godliness, or such erroneous opinions or practices as either in their own nature or in the, na or in the manner of publishing or ma maintaining them are destructive to the external peace and order which Christ has established in the church, they may lawfully be called to account and proceeded against by the censures of the church and by the power of the civil magistrate. So notice what happens here. On the one hand, it's going to say we need to regulate all lawful institutions. What are the lawful institutions? You see that in number four of our, of our guide. What are they? By lawful, what I mean is by positive institution. Do you all know that term, positive institution, by lawyer here? By positive institution means that, it, that this is something, this is an institution that God, uh, by divine decree, or juro divino, by divine law established. This isn't a, a, a voluntary institution. This isn't an institution where we created it. You know, it's, it's, it's lawful, but you don't have to be a member of it. There are three institutions that were decreed and instituted by God through positive institution. That is, he established it by law. What are those? The church, the family, and the government. There you go, and the civil authorities. And you have those. You can go to the Bible, and it commands them, and therefore it commands obedience lawful though obedience now you see that what's happening when you have an institution like that that has behind it it's not a voluntary from a scripture point of view i know from the enlightenment point of view everything's voluntary from an enlightenment point of view they view the, it's ironic here but you've really only got one institution coming out of the enlightenment that's the state everything else is a voluntary uh institution Think about it. If you, if you hear the conversation about the church in, in the public sphere, that's always a voluntary uh, institution. From a Christian point of view, that's not true. <laughs> These are all three mandated of God with divine, by divine law. Juro divino, ecclesiology we call it. Juro divino, you know, etc. And so, uh, so if you have an institution like that, that you are commanded to obey and subordinate to, if you get to that place, then you're going to have to then go, whoa, we've got to regulate that institution. We've got to make that institution very careful and regulate it. So you see what's going on here. They're going to say, on the one hand, these are lawful institutions that everyone's commanded. They're morally obligated to support it. It's not, a, you know, when I support the church, when I support my family, when I support the state, by God, I'm commanded to do it. God's going to command you to pay your taxes. Right out of Scripture. God's going <laughs> to... Fred just got upset. Bad timing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> God's going to command you. you know, up, but now, but that begs the question, well, then what rights 
do the state have? What rights do the family have? What rights do the church have? Where do they usurp your rights when they do it? That's why in the Reformation, in the whole building of nation states and all that was going on in that modern movement, really, you had such a huge, colossal conversation about liberty. So with the church, it is regulated to only bind conscience where Christ, by his word, has bound it, as with the principle, which is the highest interpretive principle you can apply, by good and necessary inference, and only applied as the scripture applies them, by good and necessary inference. So the membership question is, does the scripture say, who who does the scripture define as the constituents of the church? And the answer in so many words will be all true believers in Christ as their birthright. Just like it's your birthright to belong to a state somewhere. You didn't didn't ask, you were born into that state. Your birthright was to have a family. And your new birth, Christian birthright, is to have a family, a Christian family. And so, so this is how this stuff gets developed, you see. And it's a huge conversation. Um, and, it, and, and, and so you can think about it institutionally, as we just did, but you also can think about it how we do that in, interpersonally. When, what, who should you accept? Who should you love? Who should you be committed to as a Christian? And in what what and there's different kinds of commitments for different levels of belief, I would argue. I mean, I'm not gonna commit to you as a Christian, as my teacher, if you are not properly examined and approved by that institution which God calls the pillar or the governor of the truth. I wanna know that you've been vetted. I'm not gonna go to a doctor who was a self-appointed doctor. So I might have an obligation to the doctor to love him as a man, to respect him, to, I don't know, do all kinds. Of, there'd be all kinds of ways that we should accept him or her. But I'm not required to accept their doctoring over me until I have evidence. And this is a little different because I guess, you know, it's not quite the same. But same thing with the magistrate. I'm not required to obey the government except that the government is properly and lawfully instituted. So anybody just wants to be my governor can't say, I want to be your governor. There's there's a proper way for you to be established as a governor. You see, you you get what I'm kind of saying. And so, um, but there's other ways. Informally, what happens when we start rejecting and not welcoming one another as Christian brothers and sisters based upon things which are not conditions? They may be true things, but are not conditions for Christian unity. So, for instance, and there's different levels of this. Can you, back to this, anybody smoke cigarettes here? No. I have a couple of Christian friends that that smoke cigarettes, and they do it quite intentionally in freedom of conscience. And I don't do it. I smoked for many years back when I was an unbeliever, and praise God, he lifted me free from that. And I can make a case that, Smoking cigarettes a lot is going to be harmful to your health. Probably about the same as drinking Cokes a lot, but okay, you got it. But my point is the second question. 
What'd y'all say in the round table? Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block in their hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, how is that typically interpreted? Have y'all heard that before? Don't ever do anything that makes another person stumble. So where does that get known at? So now you got a guy, he's smoking a cigarette. He wants to smoke a cigarette at a, at a, at a party. Okay? And again, forget about the circumstances. Maybe this guy smokes a cigarette three times a year. Okay? I don't know. But he's smoking a cigarette and he just wants to smoke one. As a Christian, can I declare to him that he's sinning? First of all. As a representative of the church? No. What about as a Christian? Can I say you're sinning? No. You could probably make a good argument for what's sinning if, if you conclude that to smoke is a violation of your body and you're doing harm to your body and doing harm to your body is a sin and blah, 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 blah. But you're off, off you go into, well, how many cigarettes are really going to hurt your body and are three a year going to hurt your body? And, okay, what do you want to say? I, like, the first thing that comes to my mind would be like, who cares? <laughs> well, I'd agree with that. But this is for the purpose of learning theory, okay? So care for a minute. <laughs> I'm with you on that. But, 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 but let's get beyond that statement because it's a good one. What's underneath that statement are you saying? What are you really saying theologically when you just said that? Who cares? What, what are you saying theologically? That our relationship with that person should never be focused on... Why not? I think it's a sin for you to sin. I can't, I can't have fellowship with someone who's sinning. I can't, you know, where's that thing? I'm, you know, I'm to break fellowship with people who sin, aren't I? What? Well, if you can't have fellowship with people who sin, then you can't have fellowship with anyone. Oh, well. But at least don't sin around me. At least don't sin when, we, when I'm sitting here and you're sinning. You're causing me to be tempted, don't you know, to smoke that cigarette? Ooh, you make it look so good when you're blowing. I can, I can, I can blow... I can blow a mean, you ask my wife, I am a really good, you know, I can do, whole, you know, what do you call them? Smoke rings? I can do rings, and I can do at least four levels of smoke rings. No, three, I'm sorry, I'm exaggerating. Three levels of smoke rings. Just ring through a ring through a ring. You want me to show you that? Next time we smoke tomorrow, I'll do it. Yeah, well, let's put a pen in that one. So my point is, and I'm making it look mighty good, and you're over there being tempted. Am I violating this? Is that what I'm, what, is that what it's saying? Yeah. Yeah. Or if I, or let's say you're drinking, I'm drinking, and you think it's wrong to drink, you think it's a sin. So should I, because you think it's wrong, stop sinning? Because I don't want to cause a brother to stumble. How would that go? Right. Case in point, I'll give you another one. Lisa and I are before we thought we were going to be here. We were having a love fest down in Atlanta with a church that wanted us really bad, and we wanted them really bad. And there was a really wonderful love fest going on. We're in the last night, and it still went well. But, but, um, and uh, the question came. Will you have beer in your refrigerator? And I said, well, probably. And then off we went. We still remember that? On youth, and what happens if the youth come? How would, they, how would that look? No, what would you say? So now I'm the pastor. Am I, who is binding my conscience right now in that conversation? The will of men. Huh? The weaker Christian. Well, you say it's weaker. I don't think it's... They didn't think it's weaker. They think I'm weaker. We have a, an argument about weaker. It's the person yeah. that's bringing up the conversation. So good. So think about what's going on in the context now of this whole issue of institutions, 
but also Christians. Go to Romans, uh, turn, go to your study guide, and let's work through this, because this has been a big issue. It's things like Sabbath keeping, it's things like what? If you were to be consistent with the principle you just discovered earlier, you're going to ask the question not, it's not the question as to whether or not smoking is a sin or not. It's whether or not I should cease to welcome you in fellowship based on, is that a condition for Christian unity, for Christian fellowship? Now, what's even more is because we're so deinstitutionalized in our post-enlightenment individualistic culture, that's a mouthful, we read a passage like 14, uh, Romans 14, and we impose all of these enlightenment assumptions about what words mean. So, for instance, if you go to Romans 14, let me find it real quick here on my uh, page here. It's pretty good. So if you go to Romans 14, it's going to start off, if anybody has the Bible, they can turn to, because I don't know if I've quoted it here or not, I can't remember, let me see. This is on page, what number are we at, somebody? Anybody see that 14? Number nine? It's all the way down, there we go, it's, it's number nine. So, so just follow the argument here. So consider the teachings of Romans 14. How does this relate to the question of Christian liberty with respect to our duty to welcome one another? So the command begins, welcome one another. And this is where they're going to get off on the issue of foods offered to idols and all that stuff, if you remember. You know, within the communion of Christ, albeit those who are of the different conscience than us about various ethical matters. Now, I want you to note especially how this passage has often been misunderstood. Da, 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 da. It actually reverses the point of it. What exactly is Paul talking about possibly being destroyed in terms of the work of God for the sake of the food? Notice carefully 20 through 21 in relation to the point of Romans, no distinction. He's trying to say there's no distinction. You don't have to become Jewish to become a Christian. And therefore, you don't have to become a position here that's a Jewish practice in order to become a Christian. Even if this person thinks that the Jewish practice is sinful. In this case, that's exactly what was going on. The Greeks who came out of a temple context of of foods being offered to idols are saying, I can't eat those foods anymore in Christian fellowship. And you can understand their position. They're saying, "I, I left all that mess. I can't eat them anymore. But the Jewish person over here is saying, what's wrong with that food? It's good food. I'll eat it. I'm hungry. It means nothing to me. I don't believe in idols. Do you believe in idols? They don't exist. How are you violating something that doesn't exist? <laughs> you see? And so Paul's going to say, well, hold on here. Look, he, he concedes that there's a weaker theological position and there's a stronger theological position. You know, he makes the point Idols don't exist, you know. So, but hey, if it, for whatever reason, this person is not yet in a position where they can, in good conscience, from Scripture, not hold against, uh, not, not divorce the food from this idolatry, at least in their own conscience, then we shouldn't be forcing them to eat the food. We should say. You can come to my party and you can eat it or you don't have to. That's the irony here. And I'm not going to force you to do it. So now I have a principle for you. If me, if I am am in any context where I force you to do something 
beyond that which is a condition for Christian unity, before I can have Christian unity with you, then I violated Romans 14. And ironically, those who would say, you can't drink or you can't smoke a cigarette because I think it's sin is the one that this is against. They're saying, whoa, why did you just make that? Now, let's, let's give a, a, a caveat here. Let's say you're an alcoholic. Let's say that you are a person who you really are, by virtue of their nature, their struggle with, with alcohol right now, that you really are approaching even a kind of influence that's forcing them to drink because you recognize that they're weak and their constitutional nature such that, you know, they're, they're, you know in other words, when my dad was, uh, he, he was, he was an alcoholic for many years, praise God for the last, I don't know, 15 years he was sober. But after he went to the, he went to a place and went through what do you call it, a therapy kind of thing and yeah, thing and came out really as a strong man. And if you know him, when he puts his mind to it, it's just done like that. So he just cold turkey stopped <laughs> after all these years. But anyway, so he did that. And now I, I drink a beer. I, you know, back to, but I would just out of sensitivity to him say, this is not what I want to do. You know, we're not going to do it here. Now he was, he actually kept beers in his refrigerator for his friends when they came over. So he was pretty cool about it. But the point is, is, is that's all right. It's a voluntary. It's a voluntary, though. Now, here's the key. In Romans 14, we read words like welcome one another, and we think that's just kind of some little social, you know, give, you know get, shake their hand. No, we're talking about church membership in this passage. We're talking about when should we admit people into the communion of the saints and the family of God. And this is a great example of what we were talking about earlier, where we're saying, hold it, let's go to the scripture and ask, what does the scripture require in order for us to give to one another the privilege of covenantal union and communion of saints? Because, you know, when we do that, we take vows. And when we take vows, we're taking vows to God and to one another in a manner that binds me to God and to you. So now you can see this conversation becoming a much more it's significant. This isn't just about who can I have at my house for a, for a, a party. <laughs> We're talking about when do we break bread together at the Lord's table. And Paul is rebuking the church who established standards that went beyond the standards of, of what Scripture describes as those who belong to the body of Christ. So those are five questions that you were asked when you were joined. That's the sum total of what the church over the centuries has discerned is, a, is, is required of someone to be a member of the church. Do you confess that you're a sinner? Do you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of your life Do, and put your hope and faith in him? Do you, to the best of your ability, uh, the word's very key, uh, seek, or it's, it's, a, it's an intentional word, do you endeavor to follow the Lord to the best of your, you know, that, do you, promote, do you support the work and worship of the church? Don't, you don't, that's part of it. That's a vow. You're willing to support it and, 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 and work with it. But, and are you willing to submit to the government of the church? Now, of course, the government, insofar as our creed, severely limits its power <laughs> by the stuff we're talking about right now. This government can't bind your conscience. This government can come to you and say, hey, you need to... Uh, uh, I don't know, 
unless by good and necessary inference from Scripture, it can't bind your conscience. Not good, but necessary, as in, you know. And to protect you, we have a form of government right out of the Scripture, Acts 15, for example, that allows you to appeal a local session. If a session does something and says you, got, you can't wear beards like that, you can say, show me in Scripture, and I can come up with some crazy Scripture. I'll bet you I can, I can probably find a Scripture by good inference to tell me anything I want to say. <laughs> and then you're going to, but it's not by necessary inference. And I'm going to say, yeah, it is. So you got to beg. And you're going to say, no, I don't. And I'm going to appeal it. And that would not be a rebellious act. That would be a faithful act if you felt you needed to do that. So any questions about all this stuff? Romans 14, freedom. So think about it. But here's the thing that I get concerned about. I get concerned about the ways that Christians bind conscience by virtue of, of, of implicitly implying that um, you should feel guilty if you do this. That's probably the way that, that we were set free from guilt. Remember that part? One of the things we were set free from is guilt. So the other day we were talking about this. I was with the servant leaderboard last night to about nine or so o'clock. We were talking about something about the impact week, but somehow it came out the way we got to. We have to trust each other. Oh, I know it's about you know struggling with people who did or did not support last week's, last year's impact week, and you know, we understand you know what's going on. They're just talking about this issue. Are there people buying into this? There were people that didn't participate. Why? You know, and you could just I could feel. So I kind of stopped the conversation and said, Whoa, whoa, whoa. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta be careful. And I know everybody was in agreement with me. It's not like they were, you know, not doing. So we gotta be careful. We we are never given the privilege to judge the motives uh, of someone, to impugn or to judge the motives of someone's heart. You know, we don't know what's happening behind closed doors. We don't know what happened that night. Not turned to Patty. Y'all remember when we had a um, um, that dance? Remember the week before? I, I we kind of got I kind of got into got myself in a mess in front of the whole congregation when I said I'll be there. Y'all remember that? Anybody? That dance and I said I'll be there and all that. We're having fun with that. Well, I didn't go. Felt real guilty about it. But I didn't go and I feel, I, well, I felt guilty because I felt like I could, I let her down and the church down and, and as a pastor, that's another big thing. I mean, you feel like you're always being judged if you don't do everything. That's just part of the, the job. And so, but sure enough, I walk in church that day and, you know, had a remark by someone who's a lovely person, but, and I certainly ain't going to tell you, but the gist of it was, well, it wasn't the gist, it was, you know, I guess pastors don't like to dance, you know, they're kind of, where were you pastor? No, I'm going to tell you, when you do that, by the way, you just stuck a, you can't imagine the conscious guilt that pastors are feeling because they can't do everything. But anyway, that's another question. So don't say that to me, please. Just judge me silently, if you will. Um, but no, but then I give it, so Patty was there, and I kind of played with Patty about this issue and said, you know, this is something, we can't go there. You know, what, what we do know is it's unimaginable what's happening behind closed doors. Could be a, it could be an emotional moment. It could be a marriage fight. It could be a daughter who's in crisis. It could be you worked, you, you, just, sir, you just got into a situation and all week long, you just served night and day, and you just, Friday night, so man, if I don't stop now, I'm not even going to be able to get my sermon done. i got to just rest. You just clonk out. You might have an emotional struggle going on. You might have a mental illness going on or a mental illness of a, of a spouse or a child that's going on. You have no idea. So what do we do? We are set free, supposedly, from the commandments of men and women. I'm set free from worrying about what Fred thinks of me. And if Fred wants to judge me, 
He'll stand to God about that. And it goes back to ways, by the way. Why didn't you show up for work party? Blank. I don't even know who didn't or didn't. Why didn't you show up? Why didn't you? Why didn't you? Why? Very subtly. And when I walk through the door, I bet y'all look at me and think, ah, I know what he's thinking. I'm feeling, I don't want to see the pastor because he probably knows I didn't show up last Sunday. <laughs> see, I, by this statement, am sinning if I allow myself to even go there. I can't allow myself to even go there and make that judgment. I mean, God can make the judgment, though, can he? He knows the heart. You stand before God. You know, don't, worry, don't be wrong. It's, 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 it's going to get judged, but it just should never be judged by us. Unless there's a really careful process for that judgment that allows all the process of justice to come through, and we call that a court, a case. And there's cases and laws. And I remember when you first came to church, we spent, you, you just happened to come into our shepherd leader training um, thing where I'm training elders, and we were spending a lot of time on this issue of government and, and what, how, what's the proper procedure and process for doing any. But all of that, I remember he explained, I said, well, you don't understand. If you don't talk about it from Scripture, we're not going to be regulated. Every bit of that was coming out of this chapter. So, Y'all have questions about the freedom of conscience. You see how this is an interesting, we, we, and, and, the, and the reformers were very serious about this. Any questions or comments? Uh, we're going to move on to the church and state kinds of stuff with this, but go ahead. I, I have an offshoot of a story a little bit towards all this. It's like even before me getting the cancer and, and then getting to the point of the homelessness and all that stuff. You know, I was always thinking, like, hey, you should be able to pick yourself up and go do this. But then you get a depression or you get something going on that just causing you kind of being overwhelmed. And sometimes, like, we try to push people to go do something when then trying to process through something, mm-hmm. he- healing something. And I was speaking to a missionary just the other day who had been helping out within church for 20, 20 years, and he's having these knee issues and stuff. And he's going through the mental, even the thoughts of the suicide and other things, and just being able to talk to him, this is where I was at. And coming more as a loving conversation and saying, hey, you know, no, we sometimes have struggles that we don't know what's going on. Yeah. And it's more coming together as a brother. Yeah, it is. That's and, good. And, and, and the church does, so the point of our passage, so that's a good example. The church does have the right to come to you and, and judge you. Don't get me wrong. There is yeah, the church has the right to judge. We're not saying does anyone have a right to judge. I individually don't have a right to judge you. I can judge what you're doing is wrong in my opinion, or I can even judge what I think you're doing is wrong according to the opinion of the church and what the church has said. The scriptures principally teach. It's not that we can't make judgments. Right. Okay. We're not here saying everything's relative. We don't pass sentence. It's we don't pass sentence. It's a great distinction. Exactly. It's yeah, but but having judgments doesn't then affirm, you know give me the right to reject you as my Christian brother, unless and, and again in the context of the church membership issue, you're, you're not a Christian brother. But even there, we know that the public worship and, and participation of the church, everything it does is public. So we're not rejecting you or your presence. You know, we're just talking, you know, so I won't get into all that. But when we have a relationship with Christ, Mm -hmm. that shouldn't be such a hard problem. If we really are truly trying to seek to follow him and walk in his image that he has set before us. What do you mean it shouldn't be a problem? So the Reformation didn't need to happen. I'm playing with you. I think there should be more of a desire to want 
to follow who he is. There is. So let's just assume everybody that was going through the Reformation had that desire. Yeah. You still need to go to the scripture and duke it out. You're going to have to duke it out and say, well, well, what are the terms of communion? And what are the rights and privileges of church members in a church? And, you know, when, when do we rightfully, and remember, church disciplines for the sake of reclaiming someone to Christ. It's never meant to, the purpose of it is to restore people. And so for me to deny you that privilege as a child of God, remember, discipline is never judgment. Discipline is God restoring. So of Hebrews 12 talks about discipline. Remember, the father disciplines those whom he loves. So if, let's say that Billy Bob is, is in sin. Well, the church's position is sin is a bondage. Remember, we just talked about that. Now, what kind of church would you be not to follow a process of seeking to reclaim him by virtue of church discipline or her? Right. So, so be careful. So that's what this other, I just, I'm trying to make sure we got the sense of what this means in, in section four, where it says, or is it three? Yeah. Um, yeah, n- number three, they who upon pretense of Christianity do practice any sin or cherish any lust do thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty. And then it goes on uh, under number four is, and nothing that we've just said is meant to undermine the legitimacy of those three institutions, family, church, and state, all of which will have condition, put, will bind conscience but what our point will be is it should be bound only insofar as Christ binds it. Okay. Now, this is going to open up the big Pandora's box on, on church and state. Okay? So we have about not many much time here, 15 minutes. Let's go down to, um, and I'm going to point out a few things here. So there, there are several other things we could have talked about. I hope that you'll take, I really encourage you to take the time if you haven't already to read these, these handouts. These are like annotated chapters, basically. So really try to read them. I think you'll really uh, be benefited from it. I quote from, from Bannerman and some other people here. There's just some really great stuff here. Um, but now I'm going down to number... So let me introduce this one. This is kind of fun. So now we're talking about church and state, and we're talking about Christian liberty, right? Now let me ask you a question. Here's another one. I could have put this one on the thing. Can a Christian drive 80 miles per hour in Nebraska? Or can a Christian wait in a mountain stream with a sign, no waiting? Lisa knows the context for that one. And, no, right. Can they do that in good conscience? Well, that's another question. That is my question. (laughs) That is my question. My car goes no. So? How do you? How would you say that? Is is the? How would you answer that? What's the method of answering that one way or the other? What are you? I'm trying to get you to remember the, the the method here, theological method. What's the theological method you would use to say uh, it is a sin to drive? Is it a sin to drive say, 80 miles an hour on a 75 mile hour zone? How many thinks it's a sin? Raise your hand. How many people don't think it's a sin? Raise your hand. <laughs> Uh-huh. We got two people that voted totally. Uh-huh. There's actually, but we don't have much time. Make it short. Yeah. A lot of the state laws, and I don't know about Mon- Montana where you're at. Or Wyoming, <coughs> it actually says you go with the flow of the traffic. Okay. Well, let's just say it doesn't say that. Okay. You're, you're, I'm not trying to get into Nebraska here. I want to keep on theological uh, method here. What is your theological method? How are, you, how are you raising your hand or not raising your hand? What's, what is the rule that you're looking for here? You said the government's an institution. What? You said the government's an institution. Okay, so first is, is it a lawful institution? The answer is yeah, yeah. yes. Okay, we got that one checked off. What else? 
they're trying to protect us. So in certain areas, like when we're coming this way from the Q Bridge, we're supposed to go 40 when everyone else is going 65. So is is it a lawful? What, what's the question? Yes, it's, yes, it yes. to be. No. Scripture doesn't say the government can't, uh, it doesn't go against your conscience. Why doesn't it? I, 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 uh, I, I'm in a hurry and I'm trying to get to my, my daughter's, you know, wedding. Should have left earlier. In a good, you know, yep, I should have, but I didn't. But now what am I going to do? Am I going to be late to my daughter's wedding? I got to walk her down the aisle. It's against the state law. So I should, I should stay at 65. Not contrary to any other law in scripture Hmm. Hmm. uh, that says it's lawful. What right does scripture have to tell you how long, how, how fast to drive? Or what right does the scripture have to say wade or don't wade in a stream? Well, it tells you. I'm trying to get your method here. That's all I'm trying to do. Go ahead. You don't obey the civil authority. Okay, but but what what every law? So it tells me to just what, where does what what is? See, this is what we're not asking. What's the question you haven't asked yet? I'm trying to get you to it. Hmm. You're you're making a lot of propositions here. What is the question? What was the question we asked about the church? Is that a lawful command? Didn't we? Is that a lawful command? What is the purpose of the church? Is it a lawful mission? We're going to get at this issue of church and state. We're going to ask the question, well, well, is, is this idea of separation of church and state, is that unlawful or is that lawful in our Constitution and in our tradition? Should the church advocate for social justice? Moral justice, yes. Social justice, justice that is related to our society. No? So I shouldn't advocate for don't murder people? You can't separate those two. Okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to blow your brains a little bit. Y'all think, think, think. Think about method. What am I asking here? Should I advocate as a church against abortion? That's a social justice issue, according to our church. Should I advocate for that? Uh, yes. Yes. Okay, what's the principle in Scripture you look for? Sanctity of life. Based on what? Do not murder. Or do not murder. Okay, now you got a Scripture. And is it by good and necessary inference that a child that's conceived is a child? Yes. Yes. Okay, that is, that's the question. But we're going to assume for a moment we, we agree with that. But that is a question, a pretty important question. Is it by good and necessary inference that a child... Is a uh, that's one one day conceived is now has human rights. Yes. yes. Okay, y'all don't want to say yes. I'm asking, how do you know? Psalm one thirty nine. Okay. Okay, you got a passage there. All right, very good. So, so what did you just do? What was the methodology that you just did? Y'all think I'm at, I'm I'm not I'm not interested in doing ethics right now. You do know that. I'm trying to give you illustrations to do methodology. What's going on? Is it that the Lord is informing our conscience? So where has the Lord set me free from the, from the commandments of men? When does the state, where do we say, state, you have no right to bind me this way. Christ died so that I could be free from commandments of men. Unlawful commandments, I should add. The state can't bind our conscience. So what makes a state law lawful? Why are we asking that question? Is it lawful? I, mean, I don't really care what you think about the 80 miles an hour thing. But is that a lawful law when I am on a road 100 miles long with no cars on it, late to my daughter's wedding? Is it a law 
that you feel in good conscience, you because sh- you should obey it. Okay, let's just get serious here. If you're saying to me that you're sinning against God who instituted the state when you go 67 miles an hour or 70 miles an hour in a 65 or if the, if you have this sort of, I mean, I've heard it too, you know, police don't pull you over except for if you're 10 miles over or something like that. So go eight miles uh, over and you're probably fine. Is that a law or is that just a concession by individual cops because they don't get much money? If you are caught under 10 miles an hour, it's not a very big ticket. But if it's over 10 miles an hour, it gets to be a really big ticket. So now, is this about money? What about that stream? I'm I'm walking on a mountain. God's mountain. What's the purpose of the mountain according to God? Isn't there something about, you know, these are God's gift to humanity, to to, to explore, to love, to et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I could see a law, perhaps, that would say it is illegal to do irreparable damage or damage to the mountain. But is it a law? Is it a lawful law for the government to say you can't wade in the mountain because of uh, lawsuit fears? Is it a law to take my privilege of putting my toes in the water and saying, ah, God is beautiful. Because they don't want, they have a blanket law that's covering the case that they had five years ago where they got sued. And was it lawful that our courts found the state guilty because some family walking on a slippery stream fell broke broke their neck and sued the government because the stream was too accessible to a family and therefore it's the state's responsibility to keep me safe is that a good law now i'm 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 I'm, that's great. I'm trying to push you as a little devil advocate here where does this stop in other words is the only place that's sacred now from the government in my home and even there i think i can still smoke in my home right Mine. <laughs> well, I can't either, but it's not the law of God. It's the law of someone else, <laughs> normally. <laughs> yes, my wife is binding conscience. No, we, we can go. But you see, I don't, it's amazing to me how gullible we have become. If you read the Puritans, like a guy named John Owens, these, these folks were writing huge, thick books on the question, is it lawful? For me to go 80 miles an hour in Nebraska in a, you know, 17th century <laughs> corollary. They were looking at that issue of where our consciences can be bound. And if I break the law, con- it's called what? What is it? When Can I submit to the government by breaking the law? And if so, how? You pay your fine. You okay, what do we call that? Remember another name? Suffering consequences. Well, suffering consequences, but it's actually a term. Civil disobedience. Civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. Where I'm, obe- I'm, I'm obedient to the civil authorities. I'm willing to take the consequences. Mm-hmm. So the other day, you know, a uh, while back, uh, well, my son and I were going up to uh, the Adirondacks, and um, we were having a blast. It, you know, I hadn't seen him in a year, and we were taking our little father-son, you know, overnight, and, 
he was showing me something and we're going around a curve. And so I went over to the, you know, the curve, you know, the thing it was a really, really sharp curve going in the bridge. And, you know, and I kind of looked up casually to see there's nobody coming. So I cut the corner a little bit. I mean, it was really not, not a big deal. Just cut the corner. You know, the yellow line went over. Well, this cop was sitting over here and he pulls me over. Now, what's my responsibility to that? I just looked him in the face and said, I broke the law. I mean, he was, my son was sitting right there. I just, I said, yep, you got me. I broke the law. I was totally not looking and you're doing a good job. You did it intentionally. It wasn't because you weren't looking. No, I wasn't looking. No, I didn't do it intentionally. I, I just did it. I just wasn't thinking. It was, I wasn't thinking one way or the other. I just was doing it. I don't know. But the point is, is he, he was right. Now, the, the good news, and I, this is the first time it's ever happened. My son happens to be in the military, and, um, and somehow I just kind of let it out that I hadn't seen him in a year, and I just kind of was, we were just having a good time. And what y'all doing? Well, we're having a good time. This is my son. He's home from San Diego. You know, so we we're kind of talking about it, and he kind of picked up, oh, your son's been, do you have an ID, sir? You military? Yeah, yeah. And he took the ID, and it really works, man. He said, <laughs> <laughs> that's breaking the law. He, no, I didn't do that on purpose. And then, he's, and then he says, you know, thank you for your service, son. I'll let you off the hook today. So get a son with a civil and make sure he drives with you, right? But, but see what, we're, we're going to stop here. This is a good introduction. I think I'm just, so next week I think we're going to just slow this process down. We've got to do some church state testing because it's going to get into a bigger issue about not, not just where should the state be restrained in order to protect the, the liberties of conscience. You know, we believe God is over his state. And it's amazing to me that there's so little conversation that we so quickly concede authority to bind my behavior and and conscience. Now, I'm, you know, this is maybe showing my age. I am a hippie. Okay, I know you can't tell, but I had hair down to here. I do come out of the hippie generation, all right? Love, peace, and state get out of my life. It's not a surprise to me that, you know, you have the libertarian movement and all that. You know, and, and I do wonder sometimes whether our millennial generation, sorry guys, could ever do a Kent State. Because we've been programmed to go through the, the, the little pipelines, you know, the little organizational pipeline. What do you do to get ahead in life? Well, you, you learn, you're the organization kid, as the Princeton professor said, right? Or the organization, I'm not picking on the generation, I'm talking to all of us right now. We're the organization, you know, obey the rules, do what's right, you know, you know satisfy your professor, you know, the pipeline to success. Go to this school, do well, go to this school, do well, go to this school, do well, do this internship, do well, and you get a job. It's all that simple. What happens to a Kent State? Now, I'm actually encouraged by some of the stuff that's going on, actually. There is starting to feel like there's a little conscience rebellion going on. Not bad. But that's the state side. But what about the church side? Where should we be limiting the church and what it does related to the state? At what point am I violating our church doctrine, say preaching in the pulpit, getting into political issues. Is it wrong for me to preach politics? I want you to do some theological method here. You, you have enough tools here to do this question. Well, is that in some ways presenting a hindrance to people who may otherwise be welcomed. But I thought, I think the, if I think the Lord is, I mean, certainly I'm going to, I have no problem preaching things that's going to convict you of sin mm-hmm. or that's going to convict you or it's going to, or that's going to push against things that you believe are not sin. If I think what? That they are. 
that they are sin according to what? Scripture. According to what principle of Scripture? Goodness. There you go. So it's really very simple. It, everything keeps going back to this authority question that comes out in chapter 1. Excuse me. It comes back to, what am I lawful, uh, what, what am I lawful in preaching in the pulpit? Can I preach uh, advocacy for, for helping the poor? Yes. Can I preach macroeconomic theory number one versus macroeconomic theory number two about how no. to feed the poor? Do we do it with a this system of economy? Do we do it with that system of economy? Do I go to the Jack Kemp, uh, uh, whatever that was, uh, consortium on poverty? Or do I go to the, I'm trying to remember the other one. There was another one going on on the other side. In other words, there, there's, what's being contended in the presidential denomination? It's anyone contending that, uh, that, that, that people ought to, be in a, ought to be paid a wage that's, that's self-sustaining. Or however you want to phrase it. I didn't phrase it well. But is anybody saying, is anybody out there running on a platform, let's hurt the poor? Or let's disregard the needs of the poor? Trump? Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay. I wasn't going to say it. Well, yeah, well. And can I, right now, agree with you acting in my office as pastor? Not unless I have good and necessary inference to disagree with you. From Scripture. You see my point? So, so it's not, I have a brother that thinks that, that the separation of church and state, the fact that we're unwilling to advocate for a particular candidate is us getting in the bed of the government. Where the church has formed this nice little tax-exempt agreement, you know, this is his conspiracy theory on the church, and it's basically that, you know, Preston, you, you don't preach politics because you don't want to lose your tax-exempt status in the church, and you're just basically getting paid to not be ethical. Now, he's got kind of a good argument there, doesn't he? Is that what's going on here? Is there a choice of compromise in Scripture? Is that the bottom line? What does that mean? Well, that uh, we know there are certain uh, statutes that God has laid out for us. And if the government isn't following those and then we ignore them, we, we would be making a comment. So the first thing you're going to have to do, I, that, yeah, that, that might be, but the problem is, does the Bible prescribe, the Bible is a redemptive historical document. It's the, it is the constitution of what? The church, it's the, primarily it's the constitution for the church. It's special revelation focused. So you don't have the constitution of the United States of the Bible found in the Bible. What you do have in the Bible is the institution of the state by God. It starts with Cain, by the way. That's where you have the division of church and state, right there at Cain. Right there, well, it starts in Genesis, right there. And that, that's, that's going to be your question for next week. Why did I say that? Why was it Cain? That's going to be your $100,000 question, the separation there. Um, so, uh, so my point is, is that... Is, so what does the church actually, when, when God prescribes the church, he gives it a mission. He gives it a purpose, if you will. What, what are the terms of establishment? And is there such a thing as when the citizens believe the church, the, the state, I'm sorry, has failed its fundamental purpose, and what do we call that when, the, when citizens do that? 
It's called a revolution. They're actually saying you cease to be a legitimate government. As a Christian, that's what you'd have to say. You can't overthrow the the civil government until you believe it ceases to be, according to the definition of state in Scripture, a, a a true civil authority. It's doing something that so... It is so inherent and it's violated. Not only that, and you've exhausted all means afforded to you to, to, to conform that government to its original purpose. So, for instance, it's amazing how you're sitting in an era in the first century with Caesar, arguably one of the most corrupt regimes. It's, it's just three years away from uh, Tactius and all these you know, things are going on. You're talking about emperor worship. I mean, emperors were gods. If there was ever a state that you would think, boy, Christians have every right to rebel against Caesar. And yet not one word in all the New Testament, there's not one word where you ever see the New Testament authors writing about disobedience to Caesar. It's amazing. Jesus Christ... My kingdom's not of this world. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God. So evidently, as, as corrupt and as evil as Caesar was in some regards, the, the government of Rome still uh, met the, the, the definition of a lawful civil authority. That's something else. And so on the one hand, it's a pretty high level before you do revolution. You could make a big case that America was wrong when they did it, but that's another question. Some would say yes, some would say no, there are Christians, and well, I won't go there. But what's, what's really significant is what I'm trying to say here is that, that not only then are we as Christians, I just, it's amazing, how many people have had this conversation as Christians? I mean, it's amazing to me that so we haven't even had the conversation about, well, what is the biblical mandate for civil authority? So that's how you're going to answer your question. You're going to have to go to the method and say, well, what is the what is the mission of the civil authority? When has it exceeded its mission, according to Scripture? What is the mission of the church? When has it exceeded its mission? And what's the mission of the family? And when can DCS take a child out of a family because the family has ceased to, 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 to be a valid family for a child? And we do have Scripture to help us. So let's close there. I don't know where I can't see that clock, but... um. I think we're probably over. Pretty close. 8.36. Huh? Six minutes over. Oh, right. Well, that's pretty cool. Any, any well, I'll tell you what, next week, y'all go ahead. We're going to, if you could, I'll, have, I'll change the website and make it part two. So we're going to do part two. Um, I would encourage you to read the rest of this handout because we could go a little quicker. And we're going to talk about the whole issue of church and state. I think it's going to be a really fun conversation. You don't want to miss it. God bless. Can we go 80 in Nebraska? <laughs> <laughs> no, but you what you're going to, well, I want you to answer it. I know she's playing with me, but what's the methodology? I'm going to ask the question, first of all, is that a lawful law? Now, I'm not saying whether it is or not. I have, I have some thoughts. But, um, but, and it might be a relative, but, but here's the key. What is the, fun- see if you can answer it next week for me. What is the function, according to, to the scripture, you might want to start with Romans 12, uh, 13. What is the function of Scripture? What is its what is its responsibility? And does it does that law rise to the level 
of, of the mandate of that responsibility. It might. Um, does the, is the government responsible? I mean, there's a lot of questions, and these are really questions. I wonder myself, uh, is, it, is the government, I, I, I don't want to tell you what the responsibility is because I want to let you do it, but, but is the government lawful in telling me it's against the law to kill myself? I mean, it's a stupid law, first of all, right? It's against the law to commit suicide, I guess. I don't know. Or to go in my house and smoke hair, you know, take heroin until I die and overdose. You know, you see what I'm saying? But, but think about the concept of that for a minute. Is it, should it be against, well, the, the drug issue is a great question. Should it be against the law to, to do drugs? And if so, are there any conditions put on that? When would you say, well, in this case, yes, but in this case, no, if you would say that at all? Or are just drugs always bad and it should be against the law? How would you argue that theologically? I don't want to hear about your preference. I don't want drugs in the world. Fine, but don't tell me that. I want to hear you say from what you believe is, is, a, is a good and necessary inference from Scripture, yeah, that would be a lawful law. To them, for them to say, I can't smoke pot in my house. So are you saying all laws have to, uh, in the civil sphere, come from good and necessary inference? No, 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 I already said that there are, that Scripture doesn't prescribe civil laws. But the Scripture does prescribe the purpose of government. In other words, there's got to be at some level, there's got to be a point where you're going to say, that government has exceeded its authority. Or a particular law. Doesn't yeah, that, that, that law doesn't, that's right. That's right. So if, if it is, for instance, do you believe the government has is, is, is got the, um, the authority to regulate religion? That was a big contention in, in the 17th, 18th century, right? Or 17th century. You know, well, that's the whole First Amendment thing. But what would you have said in that debate? Should the magistrate be choosing denominations? And protecting you from corrupt denominations. Right now in Zambia, I was on the phone yesterday with man, y'all. It's so exciting what's happening in Zambia. We're planting a five mark total Christ mission Alabama church over there. Just so exciting how these guys are just eating this stuff up alive. There's love it. But we, they can't worship because they have to get permission by the state to worship. Now, what the state is doing now here now should that be something that the state should determine? Well, in this case, I'm going to tell you that I think the state's doing the right thing. But I would say ordinarily, that would be my sympathy, Fred. But in this case, what if the church had become a front for stealing money from, from and unlawfully stealing in, in money in a way that was holding down the people? You know, in other words, somewhere violating. So what if our church, for instance, and this is a great example, Exactly. Yeah. So it, what, the point was, there was some, there, I can't remember, I don't want to get into it, but I can't remember the specifics, but basically there was a, it, the church is very undisciplined and in the sense of the movement right now, not very scripturally knowledgeable and is doing things. And I can't remember what they are, but man, the, the, the true believers are ecstatic that the state stepped in because it's actually now protecting true churches to exist because the bad churches that were corrupting, they were corrupt and were doing all these horrible things have been judged to be against. So, so if we in this church were to do something that violated what we believe is a civil, a legitimate civil law, see, it should. And I think that's, I mean, there are things that this church can't do. And the government could come in here and say, 
you know what? You, you, you violated a civil law here. But they're punishing you for violating the civil law, not for being a religion. That's okay. That's a point. But they could tell me not to exist. Oh, this we're going to have some fun. I'm going to bring a few more fun little case studies for you. What happens in the Civil War? Is it lawful? So, so President Lincoln says, and you can read this in my book right over there, Kingdom Not of This World. President Lincoln says that uh, the greatest threat is not the enemy before me, but it's the enemy behind me. And he's referring to secret societies during the Civil War in the border states. In the border state, you know, you think about it, that's the worst place to live. First of all, it's where a lot of the fighting went on. But second of all, you were suspect whether, if you tried to be neutral, which is what the border states were trying to be, you were suspect by both sides. And that was the context where you had all these secret societies. So there was a law called the Rosecrans Oath. General Rosecran of the Union Army came into the border states and required pastors to take an oath of allegiance to the Union in order to be a pastor. And a Union, remember, border states belong to the Union, context. And is that right? Was that still the time when pastors were collecting money from the government or the church? Well, we weren't collecting money. From the government. I thought there was a point back in... No, there was no money being collected by churches at the time. I thought it was something I remember hearing it. Um, well, I can just tell you that it wasn't. That wasn't an issue. But, you know, we can go into it. You can maybe go back. Okay, because yeah. being up in Hartford, some of the history of Hartford, yeah. like how um, even the... Oh, you're talking about back to the Puritan period. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But this is, this is 150 years after okay. that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but yeah, but th- what do y'all think? Is that legitimate? Because, hey, secret societies could be existing in these churches, and I'm trying, and they're trying to get rid of the secret societies because secret societies was the mortal enemy of the union, which was to fight your own government. Now, you see what's going on here? Or can you confiscate a church building if you believe that a secret society is meeting there? That's, that's what happened to a guy named uh, McFeeters, Samuel B. McFeeters, which his case went all the way to President Lincoln, and President Lincoln had to make this famous declaration that it is not for the state to, to rule over the church. So he did the right thing eventually. It was a famous proclamation that's still in the, the laws of our land. Um, and that's pretty much what the book's about. But the point is, is we're going to have to ask the question, when would it have been right, when would it have been wrong? All right, I'm having fun with you. Y'all can go anytime you want. We're over.